The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 12. And I'd level off at 11,500 feet. I just cut past uh, Corpus Christi, west of Rockport, Texas. And that's where Hurricane Harvey made landfall, which is important later on in the story. But yeah, but um, I was just cruising along, got dumb and happy, and I just started getting this vibration. And just long enough to like look at my instruments and be like, what is going on? Then it was a really loud bang. Um, a big chunk of something popped through the cowling and flew up over my head. I saw the right side of the cowling bow out about a foot and a half. And it was just oil all over the canopy, and it was vibrating like crazy. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is really huge. Runway 411 at 5. Quick takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fiber check The guest for today's episode is Mr. Rob Holland, air shield pilot, aerobatic champion, all around great dude. He has won more aerobatic championships and awards than I knew even existed. He is an incredible pilot. I've had the pleasure of flying with him, and all I can say, it was really impressive. I had no idea what was happening the entire time. We're going to talk about uh, Rob, what got him hooked into aviation, his upbringing, as well as some different stories throughout his uh, career and what, how he is dealing as a professional airshow pilot during all the shenanigans of COVID-19. So before we get rolling in today's podcast, just a few admin notes. I'd also like to thank Hangar 24 Craft Brewing out in Redlands, California. They have additional tap rooms in Orange County and Lake Havasu. I'm excited because I work with Hangar 24 now, and I absolutely love the brand. I fell in love with it when I flew the Hangar 24 Airfest back in 2018. It's a phenomenal company. It's phenomenal beer. It's good people. I'm excited to see the expansion and where the company is going to be a part of it. I encourage you to swing uh, by one of their tap rooms if you live near one. You can go over to Hangar24Brewing.com and find out more information or check out their social media, Facebook, and Instagram. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters, again, a company that I just absolutely love. and I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. 
I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. And finally, I'd just like to ask if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes that helps the podcast out. And with that being said, Let's get into the podcast. I'm hitting record. If you would say something. Something. Yeah. I love these. <laughs> Again, it gets better and better each and every time. Rob, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to have you here as my guest. I wish I would have seen you already this season, but it has been quite a year thus far. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think if 2020 would just go away, I think everyone would be happy. Exactly. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get rolling to the podcast, if you just kind of tell everyone a little about who you are, what you're doing, how you got to that point in life, and then we'll go from there. Is that all? No. That's it. It's easy. It's <laughs> and, and then we should be done in two or three minutes. So it's perfect. Uh, Rob Holland. I uh, I'm an aerobatic pilot. I fly air shows all over the country. I do competition aerobatics, and I've been doing that full time for oh god, eighteen, nineteen years now been flying for about 27 years yeah and so, like you have like your awards list on the tail of your airplane which you need a bigger plane um because the at least at least a bigger rudder <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that's true you just need a bigger rudder so you can fit all the awards in there but it's truly impressive to see you fly and having been able to fly with you i can say i have no idea what happened when we flew like we were just spinning out of control it seemed like but it was a blast and it's really impressive to see you fly but this year You've really just been flying around your hometown, right? Not a lot of air shows. Not a lot at all. So I had scheduled 24 air shows for this year. And right now I have two that have not canceled. Gosh. So, and I'm not holding out hope for them too much at this point. Yeah, it's been a crazy year. I mean, obviously it's, it's kind of affected everybody. I can't take it too personally, but it does make for a tough way to try to make a living. Yeah, for sure. That. Kind of gets into you. Kind of went you went a different path, I think, than most. A lot of guys. Like the easy answer usually is kind of go through flight school, eventually find your way into the airlines, and that's where everyone just kind of lands. But you took the path less traveled, I would say. What 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 yeah. made you decide that versus going the airline route? Well, I mean, truth be told, when I when I first started off, um, let's back up even further. My whole purpose for flying was to fly air shows. Um, I've always been fascinated with aviation, but as a kid, went to an air show, saw the Blue Angels, saw people flying upside down, fell in love with it. and I was just on a mission. That's what I had to do someday. But I didn't really know how to get there. I didn't know what the path was to become an air show pilot. Yeah. So I did. I went to aviation, uh, I'm sorry, to college for aviation, got all my ratings there, uh, Daniel Webster College. And then from there, I became a flight instructor. I towed banners. I did fly commuters for a short period of time. I flew corporate for a while. But the whole time I was actually flying aerobatics. Anything I'd get my hands on would go upside down. I was yeah. teaching myself as I went. Um, and I kind of had the idea at the time that the only way to really get in aerobatics was to like get an airline job, make enough money, buy the airplane, 
and go from there. But eventually my corporate job went away, a typical corporate story. The guy lost all his money, so he lost his airplane, <laughs> which means I didn't have a job. Yeah. So I started teaching aerobatics at uh, my Goulian's flight school. Yeah. And that's when I learned that you can fly aerobatics and have other people pay for it. So after being there for a year, I started my own aerobatic flight school and um, leased a pit special and a decathlon and worked a deal with a gentleman that owned the, the pits to start doing competition and uh, start getting the air shows. And that's what kind of started that path. Um, did the flight school in air shows for a while until air shows finally kind of consumed my life. And then I've been a full-time air show performer ever since. So did you have any family who were pilots or in aviation or, you know, kidding, just went to an air show one day, saw airplanes and said, yes, that's what I want to go do. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really go back, I think I'm pretty sure it started with star Wars. I saw the original <laughs> one and I'm old enough to have seen the original in the theater when I was like three years old. So old. I thought the, I thought the millennial Falcon was like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, so I was just fascinated with airplanes, but, um, yeah, I was home actually watching MTV and Van Halen Dreams came on and I saw the Blue Angels. I was like, what is that? <laughs> and then there was a local air show that I saw what the Blues were going to be at. And my dad brought me to it. And from that point on, all my model airplanes were hanging upside down from the ceiling. And that just sparked it. And I just, I was on a mission. I had to fly upside down. Yeah, that's so cool. I, and obviously getting into it, it's not an easy business to get into. I mean, just financially, it's a huge mountain you have to climb. And then if you can get past that, the time and dedication, the training, all of that is just a huge monumental effort in order to get through everything to get to where you are today. So I say, or I kind of, I would ask is what would you say to someone who is looking you know, standing at the base of that mountain, trying to figure out how to pay for flight lessons or how to pursue a path in aviation? You know, I, I get asked all the time how to become an airshow pilot and the problem is if you ask 10 different guys, you're probably going to get 10 different answers because everybody kind of had their own maze that they went through to get here. So all I can do is talk about my experience, which was right for me, not be, might not be right for everybody else. Basically for me, I just gave up everything. I mean, <laughs> everything I did was focused on trying to get an airplane and going upside down. I mean, I didn't have a car forever. I wasn't married forever. I didn't have a house. In fact, I have our first house right now that we just moved into like two days ago. Um, so I just gave up on everything and solely focused on trying to get upside down. It was a struggle. Um, but every penny I made went into it. Yeah. So that, that was, that's how I did it. It might not be the path to somebody else, but well, I think don't be afraid of, don't be afraid to give some stuff up. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point because anything you really want to pursue, it's going to require sacrifice. And that's a prime example. I mean, that, that is a lot of sacrifice in order to get to pursue your dream. So if you want to get it. You're going to have to sacrifice, I think. That's it. And then you know, I tell everybody, I've had some parents get mad at me for this, but I tell everyone just only have a plan A in life. Don't have plan B. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Cause plan B is always easier. Yeah. You fall, everyone falls back on plan B. So if you don't have a plan B, you got no choice, but to make plan A work. Yeah. It's funny. You say that I got a, a good buddy and that's our thing is like, there is no plan B like plan A nope. must work. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, people always say you want to have a contingency plan, but sometimes, you know, if we're just like, this will work and just brute force, just push through it. You know, it's going to be exactly. painful sometimes, sometimes but the, the benefit is huge. So that's, uh, that's a really cool story. Cause again, I don't like you said, everyone has a different story to get there. I have not heard that very often. I think there's paths of least resistance. 
mm-hmm. and everyone has a different, there's different pain thresholds as far as what they want to sacrifice, what they want to give up. So what are you doing nowadays? Can you tell a little bit about your air show career, your aerobatic career for those who aren't quite as savvy in the air show world, and the aerobatic world? <laughs> well, these days, like at the present, I'm not doing a whole well, lot. I mean, right let's, let's like, we back know? up one year, let's <laughs> say one year ago today, what were you doing? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I fly air shows full time. I try to do between 20 and 24 shows a year all over the country. And I also do competition aerobatics, which is actually quite a bit different than air show flying. So I fly at the U.S. Nationals every year. And every other year I try out for the U.S. aerobatic team and I go to the world championships and fly there, which is on every other year event. And, and you win. And, and you win. And, and you win. That's that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm gotten really good at fooling the judges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but doing that. So 24 air shows a year, what does that look like as far as your calendar and your travel schedule? What is a typical month or it's, week look it's like? It's full. I mean, if, if you compare my schedule, to like some of the jet teams or the blues, it's, it's not as many shows, but I don't get to go home after every show. You know, my plane only travels so fast and goes so far. So I could be on the road for six, seven weeks at a time. You know, just going from show to show to show and then be home three or four days and then back on the road for weeks at a time again. So it's a, it's a pretty busy schedule. My, my season pretty much starts at the beginning of March. Um, I practice the full month of March three times a day, every day, just getting ready for the season. Beginning of April, I hit the ground running, which brings me to the beginning of November, which is usually when my last year show is. And then I take a well-rested a well-needed break for a while and rest. And then um, the following March, pick it up and start again. And my plane gets gone through over the winter and maintained and taken apart and put back together again. Yeah. With that, as far as the training goes into it, so you're saying like the spin-ups, three evolutions a day. What, when you go through, like we'll talk air show specific, because that is going to be a little bit different than aerobatic fly. I mean, aerobatic competition flying, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go out there and you practice, you do three flights. Are you doing your routine that you do at air shows three times? Are you doing it multiple times? What, what does that look like? It, it depends upon, well, so the first week I'm actually concentrating on more competition type flying because I'm just trying to get back into the fundamentals and the basics and the pulls and the straight lines and the precision and accurate rolls. I'm just, just trying to get the muscle memory back after taking a few months off. Um, the next week is usually starting to work on some of the air show stuff, which is funny because I'll be up there going, you know, I remember remembering how to do this. And then it, eventually I figure out how to make it work again. <laughs> and then usually the, the two weeks after that is bringing it back down to the surface and, you know, kind of massaging the routine, maybe changing the routine a little bit from the year before and then getting it set in stone for the rest of the season. Yeah. For people who haven't seen you fly, don't follow you on social media. I definitely will post a few pictures and videos I have of me and F-16 and you going by, um, where we could high five each other. So you like, you like to spend a lot of time upside down. That's like your, that is like, I think the Rob Holland, was like, yep, he's just inverted again. Cause you do have a little saying with it, but we, you know, you can see where you're going upside down way better than you can <laughs> right side up. I guess it's stretch It stretches the back out too. After all the G's. That's right. Exactly. Oh man. How many G's do you typically pull? Like what's, what's the range when you go fly a profile on it? And again, I know it depends and it varies, but. Uh, well, air shows and competition are different. Air shows actually a little bit less, but a typical air show for me is 10 or 11 positive and uh, usually like six-ish, maybe seven negative. 
Yeah. And a competition, it could be 12 and a half to about minus nine. I just threw up just thinking yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, you know, from flying with me, it's a, it's a lot of G's and the onset is really fast, but it's for a short duration of time. You know, I'd, I'd much rather do 12 G's for a second and a half than six G's for 30 seconds. There's probably some, it's definitely different. Yeah. There's some validity to that. Although I will say on the negative side of the house, negative four at half a second is just absolutely miserable for me. Negative G's always suck. They just eventually suck a little bit less. <laughs> I remember. So the time when we flew together, it was out in Fort Worth uh, before the air show on Sunday and going out and you're just kind of putting me through the ringer. It was really, it was an awesome experience. And we went through a bunch of stuff. And I remember at the end, it was like, well, we didn't really do that many negative G's. And you're like, well, we got enough gas to do like a half outside loop. And for me, I was like, yeah, this is going to be the worst experience of my life. Cause I can't say no. And then we have to do it. I don't know. Maybe we did like negative four or negative five, but just like a continuous push, just absolutely miserable. But it was a cool experience nonetheless. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I made you do it. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> just all, yeah. all self-inflicted pain here. So I was like, it's going to hurt more if I do it. So you might as well do it. <laughs> That's valid. You know, I get guys who ask me like, hey, how, you know, how do you get, I get air sick. How do you get over air sickness? I think the worst thing is when you're not flying. And it's like, Probably. and that is like one thing too. It's like, it'd be a lot more painful if I'm just sitting there and you're putting me through negative eight G's or whatever. It's still going to be painful if I do it. But there's something yeah, about exactly. when you're flying the plane, it's just a little bit different. Yep. Now, I've been pretty fortunate. I've never had any form of motion sickness or car sickness or boat sickness or anything like that. But my experience of flying with students and whatnot, it's when they're in the control, they're usually fine. When I take the controls, that's when they start getting nauseous. Yeah. There's just, I don't know. There's, there's no winning with yeah. that. What, yeah. what does it take for the aerobatic championships? Cause that's a world that I'm not very familiar with as far as like the spin up, the training and how does that, how does that work? It's so I'm always training and practicing for it. It's, it's, it's tough trying to balance competition flying and airshow flying. I think competition flying will make your airshow flying better. And I think airshow flying completely destroys competition flying skills. Um, so it's, it's tough to balance the two at the same time. But the, the competition is all about precision and presentation. And you have a small box. You have to fly everything in that's 1,000 meters by 1,000 meters. So it's not, not very big. It goes by fast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you got a panel of judges. Um, you have a set routine you have to do. Actually, there's a few different routines. And it's just it's just judged on precision. Every figure has a K value, and you get scored 1 through 10 on that figure. Multiply by that by the K value, and that's how what your score is for that figure. At the end, whoever has the most points wins. That seems pretty simple, right? Yeah. Just fly it. That's, all, that's uh, all there is to it. All there is to it. Fly it like 165 miles an hour, a couple feet off the ground, and do everything within this half mile little container piece yeah, of cake. That, that, that's it. It's a lot of fun. It, I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great way to measure your own abilities and, and try to improve yourself. You know, I mean, air shows are a blast and they're fun and I enjoy flying them and they have their own challenge, but competition is a real way to challenge yourself and make yourself improve and see yourself improve and give you something to measure against. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you view them like a cop? I mean, obviously competition, you're competing, and trying for self-improvement. I know when you go out to an air show, you're always trying to improve the routine and things like that, but it's like a little bit different. It's almost like going in like a business, a fun business, I would say, but how, how do you view it like that? Or is it anything different? Yeah. I try to approach both the flying similarly. Um, you know, 
an air show is obviously lower to the ground. In competition, we have a floor of um, it's 100 meters, so 328 feet or something like that, which you can find that 28 feet pretty easily on the altimeter. But yeah, that's, that should be real <laughs> but, easy. Yeah, but there's a margin there, and you, you're usually not at the very bottom of the box in competition. So it, it's a way. It's it's just more about um, the discipline of trying to do everything as perfect as possible. And in air shows, though you're still trying to do that, the ground is also right there, right? And you're trying to entertain the crowd. So you're trying to put on a show and a performance and keep their attention and keep them entertained and making it look wild and crazy and out of control while at the same time being within your parameters and having the margins to make it a, a safe yeah. show at the same time. What for you is the most difficult aspect of flying? Oh, um, it kind of depends upon the day, to be honest yeah. with you, because every day is different. I mean, sometimes it's the show because it's a thousand foot ceiling and it's just on the 40 knots. And sometimes it's getting to the next show because you have a huge weather system between here and there and you got to figure out a way to go around it or wait in the ground till it passes over you or whatever you're going to do. And then sometimes it's the photo shoot, yeah. you know, which can be dangerous in itself sometimes. So it it really just depends upon the day and where you are and what's happening in the environment and what gets thrown at you. You mentioned photo shoot again, there's gonna be like a million pictures I can share and videos of you. Cause I mean, you, you've done some incredible photo shoots and again, inverted flying with the blue angels and like four other different performers in there. Some just really cool stuff. Do you have a favorite photo shoot you have done? Uh, I have two favorites. Um, uh, that's probably a lie. But the two that stand out the most, I did one a couple of years ago up in Abbotsford. It was um, me, uh, the Blue Angels, the Snowbirds, and the CF-18 demo. And it took about four months to coordinate and get the permissions from the Canadian side of things. But we managed to put it all together, and we did an amazing brief, and everyone was exactly where they're supposed to be at the right time, and we got some fantastic pictures. And just to like be up there with those teams at the same time going, Holy crap, I can't believe I'm here right now. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And then the second one was last year at Pensacola. I mean, I've done a lot of shoots with the blues, but um I did a shoot where they actually dedicated an entire flight to that photo shoot. It wasn't just the tail end of a performance. They actually yeah. launched. We went out to restrict area, did the shoot, and I got to get some solo shots with the boss, which you're never get so that's pretty cool and then when we got back they made me an honorary blue angel which made it even more special <laughs> that's that's pretty that's pretty cool yeah the yeah, uh that was a that was a huge shock <laughs> not many not many guys have that that honor right i mean it's a pretty small group to be an honorary blue there's 54 of us in their what 75 year history yeah well well deserved well earned it's uh and definitely a testament to you as a person and the flying that you do uh which is really cool so I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. If only I got a photo shoot. Oh, well, next time, next, <laughs> next time around, you know, I won't yeah, yeah. we got to, we got to convince the air force that this is uh, actually good stuff for them to do good promotion. Yeah. You know, they just take, it's a different uh, way of doing things you know, the air force, it gets elevated all the way up to typically a four-star general, depending on who's involved in it versus the Navy. I think it's number five who typically is the approval authority for it. Uh, I think it still has to go through the boss, but 
It's pretty, it just has to go to the boss. Does it have to go above the boss? Right. That's a pretty, that's a walk next door and knock on the door and ask the boss versus yes. spend four months in coordination. Cause out of the, and speaking of the one, you know, that you did up in the uh, Abbotsford, cause you flew with the snowbirds mm-hmm. on that. So you, and you flew with FOMO, didn't you? I did. Yeah. They made me shave for that one. Yeah. That's funny. So I, yeah, I think <laughs> maybe I flew with FOMO about a month later or so. And I'll say yep. like the rolling inverted scissors, which I've posted on Instagram. Uh, I, I got like a good half, maybe loop or barrel roll rather before I was just pinned to the canopy because I didn't tighten my seatbelt too, <laughs> too tight. So um, I know you're always saying you're ratcheting those straps down just because yeah. again, you tend to fly upside down a lot. Oh uh, yeah. My, my seatbelt system actually has two ratchets on it. So I can just about pull myself through the bottom of the airplane if I wanted to. <laughs> For you uh, going through training and, you know, progressing to where you are today, did you have any hurdles or anything that was like challenging for you or everything just more or less come naturally and just, I know you're learning as you go, but was there anything in particular that was really tough, tough for you to grasp? And did you have a way to overcome that? Uh, There's always hurdles and there's still hurdles, hurdles all the time, you know, trying to figure out at the very beginning how to actually get hired at an air show. You know, how do you convince an air show to take this person they've never heard of and let them perform in front of 50,000 people and know that they're safe? So that's kind of a big hurdle. And then trying to get your name out there on the promotional side of things and getting the aircraft. You know, the first few airplanes that I used in air shows, I was borrowing and leasing. I didn't have my own airplane. So trying to deal with that and then finally getting in a position where I could actually get my own airplane and the hurdle of having to make that payment every month. <laughs> training, practicing. I mean, there's, there's always hurdles. This is a big hurdle right now. You know, there's no air shows this year. So trying to get over this big financial hurdle to make it to 2021 and carry on. But it's just, it's just stay focused, you know, stick to that plan A and keep going. Gosh, what do you think? I mean, I know everyone has their guesses, but going into 2021 for air shows, you have a feeling what it's going to look like or what's, what's Rob Holland's best guess what the air show world looks like in 2021. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball. I mean, my gut feeling is that air shows will be back in full force. Um, there might be some changes, maybe at the beginning of the year, they're more like drive-in type air shows than they are walk-in type air shows, but it's, it's just so many factors that can go into it. Will they have a vaccine by then? Will they not have a vaccine by then? Will this whole curve thing have kind of flattened out and heard immunity taken over. I just, I don't really have the answer, but my gut feeling is um, I don't think air shows are going to go away. I think this year is going to be really tough. I think starting off next year might be a few hurdles, but I think it's going to ease back into status quo. Yeah, I hope so. I think it seems like life is starting to spring back up uh, around the country. So hopefully does that and we don't see a spike and people kind of get comfortable and being back out and, and doing things as has one thing that'd be really, I mean, this obviously your primary source of income and you're not alone with that. And it translates across various business spectrums. So hopefully we, we get things churning again. But Yeah. I mean, air, air shows are what's I cast say it's like a, it's a one and a half billion dollar a year business throughout the country. So it's, you know, it's pretty yeah. big. Yeah. It's a decent, decent market. A lot of people, you know, looking for the family entertainment. And again, it's like prime example, little tiny Rob Holland, probably who is, I don't know, 99% 
percentile of his height showing up to an air show and, and seeing that, you know, I think it's so important. And you know, it's the nice thing about, I think the air force finding value in sending out demo teams or the OD period, sending demo teams and spending the money to go out and, you know, engage with the public and hopefully inspire, you know, young kids to pursue careers in aviation. And yeah, you know. absolutely. That, I mean, that's part of it. I was totally inspired. I was inspired by the blues and I was inspired by all the performers. I saw at that first air show to make that my goal and become an air show performer. But it's, you know, you, you just part of the fun of this and part of the, the, enjoyment of doing this is trying to inspire people and it might not necessarily be to become a pilot it's just to you know what do you want in life just go for it just you know grab it and go yeah you know, maybe it takes an extra few years to actually get there but who cares enjoy the journey just get there yeah that's what i would say you gotta have some kind of passion you know mm -hmm. pursue it that's where you'll find fulfillment in life i think you know oh yeah i'm not not it's, that, not it's, that wise it's, but it's going to be work it's going to be hard it's going to be challenging. It's going to be frustrating, but it's also going to be very fulfilling. For sure. A hundred percent agree. So I think this, and this kind of translates into, you know, adaptability and having to deal with the situation. And if we kind of tie back to aviation, you know, nothing really ever goes as planned and you're always having to be ready. So when it comes to emergency procedures training and things like that, what do you do to prepare? Is that part of your, your everyday prep, monthly prep? What, how do you, how do you face it? That's, I mean, that's part of everything. So when I'm practicing, I also practice failures or I practice mistakes or I practice, you know, if a tumble and I hold it too long, what's it going to develop into and how do you recover out of that? Um, and all of my figures are, they all have margins, they all have numbers and entry airspeed and altitude. And it's all calculated based on worst case scenario, the nose is straight up in the air, your zero airspeed, the engine quits, or whatever the worst case could be for that figure. What do I need to get the airplane upright into a flared attitude? You know, how much altitude does that take? And then I basically add 400 feet onto that. And that's you know, all, every figure has that number built into it. And if you don't meet the number, you don't do the figure. That's what, yeah, I mean, there obviously have been a lot of people that have killed themselves flying in air shows. Mm -hmm. A lot of variety of reasons that go into it. Um, I know part of the study for the F-16 demo was studying some mishaps we had in the air show world in the in military aspect. Some of it um, was related to maybe pushing the limits. Others were mechanical or things like that. But I think the one thing came, you know, that stuck out the most is, especially when you're flying. And I think this, again, this translates across most things. Like usually people don't know what they're missing or if you're doing something that's outside of your normal parameters, um, mm -hmm. if it's safe, right. When it pushes limits, especially now we're talking flying air shows, people can see you get low. People can see you almost scrape the trees and things like that. It's never worth it to push through a gate. So, I mean, I always refer to them to gates, exactly. you know, I got an airspeed and altitude, a start and a finish. If I ever exceed those parameters or outside those parameters, I'm going to abort the maneuver and yep. safely recover the aircraft. Cause again, it's just not worth it. Um, exactly. I mean, the way, the way I set up my routine is, you know, every figure, like I said, has its, its gates and its airspeeds, but every figure has um, the main figure that you're trying to do. There's, you don't have the gates. So I have a substitute figure that I can put in something to gain some energy back to keep the routine going. And then the, 
figure C is you just stopped, you climb up, you start again, and you end the routine, whatever you have, have to do to, to be safe. But I mean, if you do it right, you do it religiously and you, you stick to your numbers, nobody on the ground is going to notice, right? You know, this nobody's going to care. You know, I, the only people that are really going to notice are the probably your peers who see you fly it all the time. And they're just going to give you a pat on the back and say, you know, good decision making. I think I told you this story, but it was one to like, for those listening you know, when I flew the F-16 demo, we had to have 1500 feet, um, altitude for cloud clearance or, you know, for the weather that day. And it was in Oceana and the weather was right at 1500 feet. And I took off, I flew the demo. Uh, and then I went and rejoined with the P-51 behind the crowd. And I was like, just out of the periphery, it was like, those houses seem really close. I glance in, I see we're about 500 feet because the weather behind, it was just a sloping cloud deck had pushed us down. And so in my mind, I was like, ah, Jimmy thinks I flew this entire demo at like 500 feet, you know, or 800 feet, well below my minimums. The crowd has no clue, right? But he, oh. you know, in his mind, he's thinking that. And then I'm thinking of all the other performers on the ground who think maybe I did that, you know? So um, it was one of those things that it's just not, it is not worth it to push it. And you risk like your professional integrity. And really oh, it's the people who are judging you or it's, it's your fellow performers, fellow colleagues and things like that. So Thankfully, I'm like, hey, Jimmy, trust me, we'll just go fly over the, the runway. It'll be at 1,500 feet. And then thankfully, it still was. Otherwise, it would have been real painful. But um, yeah. like, trust me. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of crazy that I guess some sometimes, or it's not crazy. I think it's it's easy, especially if you don't have the experience. And even if you do have the experience, to sometimes let the pressure of performing yep. and making it happen get to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you gotta, you gotta stick to your gun. You just gotta be safe. I mean, you know, you gotta live on to fly the next show and fly the next day and come home at night. So, right. That's all that matters. Yep. So, uh, we kind of down the rabbit hole there, but I did want to talk about, um, cause one thing that really impressed me, you know, being, having most of my time in single engines, I'm always worried about my engine quitting. I'm mm-hmm. always thinking, where's the nearest piece of concrete? Where's the nearest piece of concrete? Uh, what's my engine doing? What's my engine doing? But you had an engine failure, uh, leaving an air show. I guess it was about two years ago now, right? 2018, March 25th. Yeah. Like it's like <laughs> in your memory for a reason. I remember yeah, seeing the pictures afterwards and it's just like, Holy cow. But it was a yeah. phenomenal job of recovering the aircraft. But I was wondering if you're willing to kind of talk through like, you know, what, what was going on as you're cruising out? Like what was the scenario there and what happened and how'd you, how'd you sure. handle the situation? I was at, so first off, I would have actually much rather that whole thing happened during an air show than in transit because my air show is designed for any portion of it. If something goes wrong, I'm at a airspeed or an altitude where I just, I have an exit plan and I can land, you know, and there's usually a runway right there, but I had Taken off out of um, NES Kingsville. I was heading up to Shreveport, Louisiana. Just going up there to do some practicing. I'd level off at 11,500 feet, and I'd just cut past uh, Corpus Christi. And I was um, over Rockport. Uh, I wasn't really over. I was kind of to the west of Rockport, Texas. And that's where Hurricane Harvey made landfall, which is important later on in the story. Noted. But yeah. but um, I was just cruising along got dumb and happy and I just started getting this vibration and just long enough to like look at my instruments and be like, what is going on? 
Then there was a really loud bang. Um, a big chunk of something popped through the cowling and flew up over my head. I saw the right side of the cowling bow out about a foot and a half. And it was just oh, oil all over the canopy and it was vibrating like crazy. It's like, whoa. So I slowed away down. I pulled a throttle, which I, mean, I didn't do anything. The engine was dead. Um, but I slowed it down. The prop stopped, which made the vibration go away. And then I was like, all right, well, I'm committed to this situation right now. <laughs> so, Love the one you're with. Yeah. So I just, you know, the first thing is you, you try to find the closest airport and you aim at it. So I have, I, mean, I couldn't look out the window because it was covered with oil. I could kind of see 90 degrees left and 90 degrees right, but I couldn't see anything out the front. So I looked at the GPS and I found two airports that were pretty close. One was a private strip and just a little bit further was a uh, Rockport airport. So I aimed that way and started going through my options. Um, my first thought was actually jumping out because I didn't know what landing was going to be like where I couldn't see, but it was really windy that day. It was gusting like 30 and um, I'm not exactly an experienced skydiver. I've exactly one time I have an airplane. It was with the Golden Knights strapped to them. So yeah, nice. Um, yeah. Well, for, for those who don't know, I mean, that's, that's a big factor as far as, you know, with gusty winds, especially at the surface. Oh yeah. Like, and it's a small round shoot and I can just picture coming down and being dragged. I mean, imagine being under shoot and hitting something at 30 miles an hour. That's yeah. How did Rob die? Well, he he landed safely and then he was drugged to his death. Exactly. So I rolled that one out and then it was Southern Texas. It was flat fields everywhere, but it was March. So they're all freshly plowed in my airplane with being a tail dragger. That's instant upside down. So that was really a factor. Yeah. So I was like, well, I really wanted to make it to Rockport airport because it was a nice big runway, but I didn't, know if I could make it to this day. I don't know if I would have made it there or not. And between me and there was a lot of water too. And I didn't want to land on the water. <laughs> yeah. So I found yes. this other strip that was marked in the GPS as a private airport. So I aimed for it. And it just, where I was, it was clearing a million towards the coast. There was just a couple of like scattered clouds, but it happened to be one big one right over that runway. Naturally. So I knew where it was, but I couldn't see it. So I'm circling down and I, come around the cloud and I finally lay eyes on the airport. I'm on basically base to final at 700 feet. Here we go. I'm committed. So I'm slipping the airplane. I'm looking out the side, seeing what I can barely see. The last second I kicked it out. I remember touching down that quick feeling of, and then the next thing I know there was a bang and the plane was sliding on its belly and it went off the runway and it was a rough ride and I slid about a thousand feet to a stop. And I was like, Whoa, what just happened? It's like I got out of the airplane, the gear was ripped off, and the plane is totaled. It did its job of protecting me. I was fine. I tweaked my ankle a little bit, but you know, it's funny. Like, I knew the landing gear was gone, but I was still pushing on those brakes for all that they were. Yeah, yeah, just natural (laughs) instinct, right? Yeah, that's probably what tweaked my ankle. But the, the next day, I walked the runway, and we talked about Hurricane Harvey making landfall. Well, this private strip was actually an abandoned airport. It hadn't been an airplane there since 1999. And uh, Hurricane Harvey had taken a big piece of somebody's roof and deposited it on the runway. And I didn't see it because my canopy was covered with oil. So I touched down and I T-boned it with landing gear. That's what ripped the gear off the airplane. That is crazy that the airport had been closed that long and it was still in the database. Yeah, it's... um, it was, it was good and bad, right? It was good because I had some place to go. 
uh, it's kind of bad because there wasn't really a runway anymore. There was big electrical boxes along the side. They were using it as a road. Um, if I had landed maybe five feet more to the right, I would have hit one of those electrical boxes with my wingtips and spun out. I mean, it was there's so much that went right for something that went wrong. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I can't even imagine just like, obviously one, losing your engine, that's a significant emotional event. Um, but then the cloud, the oil on the windscreen, like everything. And then a roof sitting on the runway, you know, that you can't see <laughs> yeah. all these things. It's still, it's still a direct TV antenna on it. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. Gosh. Oh, I cannot, yeah. I cannot it imagine. Happened fast. I mean, my airplane does not glide very well. It's from, from engine to failure to when I was actually on the ground was just under three minutes. What was the glide ratio? Down. Down. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like an F-16. It like down, yeah. it glides a little bit. Basically, it's just a brick being thrown. It's about 3,500 feet a minute down. Okay. At desk glide. Yeah. Yeah. For, for a small light airplane, that's it's kind of yeah. like a manhole cover. Yeah. I figure like that thing probably would have been gliding pretty well, but it's just all yeah. engine. Yeah. And that big flat prop out there is a big air brake and symmetrical airfoil and it just doesn't glide very well at all gosh but i mean that all comes back to your training right i mean coming speaking on pilot you practice engine outs all the time and what are you going to do and i've always tried to keep it a part of my a part of my routine just going cross country just rambling going if i engine quit right now what would i do where would i go you know what, what are my options and that's what kicked in i mean it the first thing was to get the plane secure so that I could actually fly it and stop vibrating. And then it was, let's go to work. I'm committed to the situation. So how are we going to walk away from it? Yeah, absolutely. That's I think the, the startle effect, obviously it's impossible to replicate that probably by yourself. Cause you're like, all right, now I'm going to do it. But I think that's probably the best way. And I did that too, going cross country. I'm like, all right, my motor quits now. What, where am I going? Um, and if you don't think about it, if you don't prep for it, I mean, that's not the time is when your motor quits is to try and figure out what am I going to do now? Exactly. Uh, you're about five years behind the plane at that point. <laughs> yep. So you got that safely uh, on the ground. And then I mean, you were back flying air shows like a week two or weeks. Yeah, two weeks later. So again, going through finding a plane and all that stuff. Well, that's where, the, um, you know, we always talk about the air show kind of being a family and that's where the family kind of kicked in and, and helped. Um, from when I was on the ground, I mean, I immediately, it's amazing how fast word spreads, but like the Bull Angels were calling me, everyone was calling me trying to help and contribute. People showed up and helped me get the airplane into a truck to truck it out of there. Plane is total. It'll never fly again. Um, and the call started going out and the gentleman who bought my old MX2, my old two-seater, um, he was kind enough. He said, here it is. Let's work a deal. Take it, put it on the road, brand it up and uh, have at it. Yeah, that's incredible. I got it trained up for a week in the airplane, just remember how to fly it. And two weeks later I was Tuscaloosa flying an air show. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Air show. I mean, it's definitely a small tight knit community. And that's what I love about it so much is it's the people, uh, who'll, you know, give the shirt off their back. So then this year, everything gone to plan. I mean, you have your new plane. How's that thing flying? Oh, that's awesome. I got it. It's kind of a whirlwind, but I got a July last year. And I had just enough time to put it together, do the test flying, get it from Louisiana to New Hampshire to take it apart, to ship it over to France to get ready to fly the world championships in it. So the first 
actual training I did in the airplane was was in France, and I had two weeks to get ready for the championships. That's crazy. How long does it take you to take that plane apart? Like three or four hours. How about to put it? Easy. How about to put it back together again? The same. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're just taking yeah. the wings off, right? Yeah, the wing comes off, and it's it's a one piece wing, so it just drops out the bottom. You know, but what takes the longest is just getting all the fairings and stuff off and out of the way. Well, you could have told me four days and I've been really impressed, but now I'm not so impressed. <laughs> I still I'm like, it's no small feat. We're going to ship this plane across, across the globe and then go fly it. But it's a, it's a great airplane. I'm loving it. Um, MX built it for me. It's, you know, my, my other airplane was kind of custom built for me, but we were trying new things and seeing how they would work and they happen to work. And this airplane was, let's take what works make it better you know make it actual real instead of kind of frankenstein together yeah and then other niceties with the airplane like it carries a lot more gas for cross country it's got an autopilot in it you know 90 percent of the time when i'm in the airplane is because i'm going somewhere yeah show to show so you got to make that kind of convenient it's okay you, you can say you're getting old you know I'm getting old yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can see the grays yeah. i want to autopilot yeah that's <laughs> i'm getting lazy it's a, it's a great I told them when they build it, I said, okay, build this airplane like you're going to land at a small airport. You have a small bag of tools. And you have to be able to get to and work on everything by yourself. And they did. So it's a very user-friendly airplane, and it flies amazing. Are they making more of the you know, the model they made for you? Or are they just kind of – because they keep basically just improving upon each airplane they build, correct? Or uh, there's, there's two basic models. There's an MX-2, which is a two-seater. There's an MX-S, which is a single-seater. Um, and they're, they're pretty, I mean, they're incredible airplanes stock as they are. And they pretty much sell stock airplanes with mine. I had redesigned the rudder in the elevator and there's a few other changes throughout. And that rudder is getting incorporated into both the MX2 and the MXS now. Um, some of the other things that we incorporated are getting incorporated into airplanes, but there's some stuff that it, it's, it's great for air shows. It's great for what I do in my style of flying, but I don't think you'd want to put it on a stock airplane for the average yeah, Joe's gonna fly it. So, you just want a bigger rudder so you can put more awards on there, or just like so exactly you can tumble out of control even more. You always need more rudder, more rudder, more horsepower. <laughs> I just found out what a rudder is recently, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you feed up for now? Yeah, so it's not just for taxiing, apparently. <laughs> Use it for flying. <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> no, it's uh, uh, it's a fun world. That's what I, I want to get back into GA flying and. You know, flying the triple seven round is a lot of fun, but obviously it's a lot of automation. So, you know, the left hand, right hand skills uh, start degrading there pretty quick, I think. So got to got to get out there and keep challenging. So, well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Rob. Is there anything before we split ways here if uh, that you want to impart your wisdom on on the listeners? No, just have a goal and go for it. I love it. it. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. It's Rob Holland, everyone. Fly good and don't suck. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. The most important part of this whole, this whole podcast, fly good, don't suck. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you uh, joining and sharing the tidbits of wisdom that you have. Hopefully 2021 life is back to normal. Uh, Hopefully the remaining two shows you have go and people can go see you fly. I'll definitely have uh, several videos up on my Instagram, but I know people can go over to Rob Holland. Uh, Ultimate Air Shows, right? Ultimateairshows.com, yeah. Yep, and they can check out all that. So, uh, or just 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 YouTube my name, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and just be some guy who's upside down. Yeah. Flying exactly. around. That's what he does. Well, but 
Well, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great. It's been great talk, talking to you and catching up on everything. Likewise. Well, I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. And hopefully we can go flying soon. That's really what we need. Absolutely. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.